This is Isaac Morehouse. Welcome to the podcast where we discuss education, entrepreneurship, big ideas, how to put them into practice in the real world, and above all, how to live free. Mama, there goes that man. (laughs) You can't. I noticed you did that to me today. I posted an article on Facebook and you posted a video clip and it was so difficult because I'm so, I love me some me, you know, I was flattered by the compliment. Like you were like, dude, Isaac, you just killed it. But I hate that phrase, especially because it's usually used about like LeBron James, but Mark Jackson is so over the top. So I was so torn. I mean, that was a really devious move to compliment me with something that drives me nuts. Well, I'll tell you my thought process. I was thinking, man, this guy is my best friend in the world. (laughs) (laughs) What can I say to show the proper respect? he loves himself well. (laughs) For those of you who don't know what we're talking about, uh, these are all phrases I've made fun of TK for saying. TK, welcome to Fridays with TK once again. It's good to be here, my brother. Back in a beehive, ready to light it up. Do you hear that? That's like an actual landline phone. I'm up in Michigan uh, visiting family. We had a family funeral, and I'm at I'm at my mom's house. I'm in the basement, and she still has a landline phone. It just started ringing in the background. What a weird sound. Sorry about that. I, I think you need to make that a part of every show from here on out. Just have a moment where the landline randomly rings, and you could be like, all right, it's landline time. <laughs> and then we, we do like a blast from the past where we talk about on this day in 1966. Oh, it looks like <laughs> we have a caller. It's a lady. Hello, lady. What if you're query? <laughs> it's funny. We were watching a movie one time, and there was a phone ringing in the background, and my son, this was a couple years ago, was like, what is that sound? And he had never heard a landline ringing before because we've had cell phones like ever since he was – Anyway, it made me feel old. Um, okay, I know you have something you want to talk about. I know I have something I want to talk about, and my thing might get it a little deep, a little heady. So let's start with you. What did you want to kick it off with? Yeah, man, before we get too deep, your article really got me thinking, man. So you wrote this post. I would like you to kind of kick it off talking a little bit about what inspired that. But the post was, don't try to find yourself until you know how to work. For those of you who haven't read this, go check it out at discoverpraxis.com on our blog. It was yesterday's post. You can also see it recently shared on both of our Facebook pages. But man, dude, like you you brought the heat with that post. It, it had an intensity about it that, that makes me want to know what was going on that inspired you to write it. But but um, yeah, l- let's talk about that first. Well, you know, it's funny. I, I have found this little trick. And I don't use this. This is probably only 10% or fewer of the things that I write. Um, do I, do I employ this? But the trick is to write at somebody like somebody specifically, whether it's a real person you've met or an archetype that embodies real people you've met. And it lets you kind of do that fire from the belly sort of writing. And Normally, you and I talk a lot about this, you know, borrowing from Robert Fritz, um, his books. Um, I don't like to be in the response react mode. I like to be in the creative orientation and being a critic and responding to things that make you mad and whatever. I don't typically like to operate from that way. I like to, to criticize by creating. Sometimes, though, when it comes to and, and it is creative because you're creating a, a blog post, a written thing that you're publishing. When it comes to trying to find a, a source of inspiration for content, going out there and just like reading something or thinking of something, just getting angry at something or just annoyed at something that you've seen one too many times. And it's like, all right, that does it. And letting yourself kind of have a rant. There's something that you can tap into there that's really raw and I think really powerful. And I don't I don't usually think like, oh, this is a good post that I wrote when I write it. But I can always tell when I write from that place of almost like an anger at something that I've encountered in the real world and I'm writing specifically at that. Mm-hmm. It always does well. People always resonate with it. They always because because it's like you're never the only one who feels that. And if you give mm-hmm. voice to it. So anyway, in this case, um, I was actually having a conversation with our colleague Derek McGill And we were just like, somebody had emailed us both or something about wanting to do something with Praxis. I I can't remember what specifically brought it up. And it was one of these like, you know, I'm going, I'm touring, um, you know, 
South America to go on a vision quest for entrepreneurial, whatever, you know, and Derek and I were like, oh my gosh, this whole obsession with like all the podcasts I listen to. I love Tim Ferriss and James Altucher. And I mean, I love all this stuff about sort of optimizing your life, but I didn't even discover that stuff or have any interest in it until like pretty recently until really especially stuff specific to entrepreneurship until I became an entrepreneur and launched a business about a year in when I started to hit real struggles of building and growing a business. Now, all of a sudden, these types of resources were valuable to me. I never read a single business book before I launched Praxis. I hated them. They were all useless to me. Still, most of them are useless, but some of them are phenomenal. You know, um, until you're in the context where you're like doing the work all that stuff doesn't matter. And and because entrepreneurship is kind of trendy and lifestyle design and being a digital nomad, and that's all well and good, but the number of people who just focus on optimizing their life before they even have a life to optimize, like they haven't built anything. They don't have, they're not struggling with discovering their identity and finding their passion because it's not like they've been working for two years and they're trying to figure out how to apply their work ethic to something that they love more. They've been trying to, They've just been pursuing what they love and and like floating around in the clouds for two years and they just keep wanting to do that. And it's I, I the analogy I use in the article is is one that I've used before to, to basketball or you could use biking, you could use anything, but I like basketball. So trying to study the finer points of the game and understand the the, the mental tricks used by Michael Jordan is absolutely asinine if you're not already putting in thousands of hours of play. Once you're playing all the time, now those things start to matter. Now the life hacks and productivity tips and which apps you use for your to-do list, that only matters if you're already a doer. It doesn't matter until then. So, So starting with that is absurd. Starting with theory before you're in the game. Players play. And you got to be playing before you try to optimize, you know, that that's sort of where it came from. So I was just sitting there yesterday, like, oh, I got to write a Praxis blog post today. And I'm really busy all day. And I was like, ah, oh, what am I going to write? What am I going to write? You know what? Derek and I had a good rant about this. Let me just sit down and write this. And I hammered it out. Well, man, first of all, I got to say, when you talk about how when you're in the reaction response mode, you tend to be more interesting. I, I find that same paradox present in my own life. When I'm in the creative orientation, oh, we've decided this, TK. We've already decided (laughs) the way to get the most out of you. I always tell you when you go give a talk, I'm like, remember, pick somebody in the audience and imagine that they embody everything that you hate and speak specifically to them in like an argumentative form. (laughs) That's where you're at your best, dude. I am only interesting when I'm when I'm angry at something. (laughs) But but what's funny is I'm I'm only angry. I'm only spiritually fulfilled when I'm coming from that place of love yourself, man. I mean, I'm so happy, but I'm so boring. <laughs> but when I'm just super mad. Uh, that's when I get interesting. But I, I want to read a little passage, man, from from this article that I, that I thought was, um, as we sh- say in the shy town, that I thought was dope. Um, says, I meet far too many bright young people on their fifth backpacking tour of South America with the world's greatest podcast playlist and a CrossFit paleo cold shower routine anyone would envy. Except they haven't earned anything but tweets, built anything but dreams, or optimized anything but the options they imagine. I don't trust them to deliver. Hell, I don't even trust that their insights, if they, I don't even trust their insights if they've not been tested in the world of grinded out value creation. I mean, man, you know, when I think about entrepreneurship, I think about two guys in my life, my father and my father-in-law. I am pretty confident that neither of these guys have ever heard of Seth Godin, Tim Ferriss, James Altucher. They do listen to the Isaac Morehouse podcast, though, right? They heard of the Isaac Morehouse (laughs) podcast. They do know that. (laughs) They do know that. But they've never heard of these guys. And, and, and that's no that's no insult to those guys. But these guys are both successful, self-made entrepreneurs who do work they love, provide tremendous value for society. They provide for their families. They they I've never heard either of them 
you know, whine and complain about being victims. They, but they have a mad sense of hustle, but they got where they got, not by reading a lot of books on entrepreneurship or listening to a lot of podcasts or trying to use optimization life hack techniques. They got where they are by just grinding it out, grinding it out. And there's something to be said, man, about the willingness to put in the work. It reminds me of that saying about writing that you first got to master all the rules of writing before you're good enough to ignore them. All the best writers break the rules, but they break the rules because they know the rules better than anybody else. And, and I think that's something that we've gotten away from with entrepreneurship. We live in the world of entrepreneur porn or the world of manurepreneurship, right? Where we get off on talking about entrepreneurship. We talk a lot of crap about entrepreneurship, but we forgot the simplicity of just getting stuff done, just showing up and delivering. It's not about going to conferences, not about hanging out at coffee shops, not about using words like disruptive and sustainable, not about designing your office space to look like a tech startup, not about buying beanies or dressing a certain way. You can be your ugly, boring self, but if you know how to hustle, there's nothing that can substitute for that. And there's hardly anything that can compete for that if that willing to hustle is absent. Oh, man. I mean, give me give me somebody who's built from scratch a successful injection molding company or garbage disposal company or retail company and only known that hard work that it takes to get that. And let me introduce them to the possibility that they could do something much bigger. They could change the world. They could 10x or 100x their output. They could, you know, re, uh, build a, a colony on the moon. Let me introduce them to limitless possibility once they've already shown me that they are a somebody who knows how to grind it and create value. I would take that any day over someone who has followed every big picture, big dreaming Silicon Valley thinker but never grinded it out to build anything. I, you can't you can't instill that work ethic in somebody who's a dreamer and big on all the the hype nearly as easily as you can the other way around. Take one of these Midwestern small business owners who's built something that's totally not scalable and say, now take this same energy. Again, only a small percentage of them are, will do it, but take this same energy and apply it to something even more world changing. I would rather fit, take that challenge any day than taking someone who's like, I want to make a dent in the world like Steve Jobs said. So I've gone and done peyote for five years and thought about it. You know, I, I think one of the things we underestimate in our efforts to save time and save energy in order to avoid the extreme of, of workaholism is we underestimate the extent to which hustle it can can itself be a life hack. So I wrote this blog post called Learn How to Carry the Tray. And I talked about my experience as a, a server at my first restaurant job at Olive Garden, where we had to carry every food item on a tray. My, and but my kids think Olive Garden is the most fancy restaurant in the world. By the way. <laughs> it is, man. It's ironically the place that taught me how to be fancy. I learned everything I know about wine tasting uh, in my <laughs> training. So, you know, my, my first time out, dude, I had this lady who was uh, clearly a businesswoman dressed really nice. And I dropped my tray of drinks on her, man. It was a traumatic experience for me. She was very gracious and forgiving, but it put the fear of God in me when I went to work. And I was nervous all the time. So one day I just, I just decided I can't take this anymore. So I went up to my GM and I asked him, can I take a tray home? And he looked at me like I was weird. And some of the other servers around me were like, uh, what is this dude doing? And he was like, I can't let you take a tray home, man. And I said, look, every time I come to work, I drop stuff on people. That's costing you money, and I know you don't like it. If you let me take that tray home, I can practice, get better at doing my job, and I won't cost you so much stress. And he was like, you make a good point. Take a tray home. So <laughs> I took the tray home, man. And, and my friends, they, they made fun of me because here I am on a freaking Saturday when everybody else is out hanging out. I'm in my apartment walking around with a tray, putting dishes on it, trying to get my skills tight. Now, here's what's interesting. All of my other friends criticized me on the basis of thinking about work while I wasn't at work. 
They responded to me as if I were some kind of unhealthy workaholic for spending my Saturday night walking around practicing tray carrying while everyone else was having fun. And people would give me all the usual cliches like, man, you got to work to live. You can't live to work. The purpose of work is being able to go out and have fun and enjoy life. And you at home thinking about work. Now, here's the irony of it. The irony is just a few days of putting in that extra time, sacrificing my ability to go out on a Saturday night. I got myself into a position where I actually enjoyed being at work because I was good at my job and I wasn't afraid of making mistakes and work ceased to be this stressful thing for me. And I would have a lot of fun. I would engage the customers. I would make good money. And all of my other friends who didn't put in the work, they were stressed out all the time. And not only did they have to work harder than me, but when they went home, they vented about their jobs for an hour and a half because work was such a stressful experience. So the paradox of that story is that because I was willing to work harder, I didn't have to work as hard. Mm. And because they were trying to avoid having to work as hard, they were forced to work even harder. And there are so many people, man, who spend all of their time trying to find shortcuts, trying to get out of working hard. And these same people who do that and who criticize everybody else as a workaholic, these are the same people that come home and spend two hours every day venting about work. And these are the same people who get depressed on Sunday nights because they're thinking about this job Monday that's going to sap all their energy from them. These are the same people who walk around tents Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday, you know, waiting for the next vacation because they're working all the time and they're working all the time precisely because they're spending all their time trying to figure out how they don't have to work all the time. You know, I feel like you have to become a workaholic first before you can discover how to not be a workaholic and have a proper relationship to work. Like trying to discover the proper relationship between working too much and the, you know, the 80, 20 rule, how do you focus on just the stuff that brings the highest return and ignore the rest and have more leisure those are all valuable approaches once you've already become someone whose biggest problem is you're working too much or working too hard. Until then, I don't think any of those help you. Like, I think you just have to just start when you're young, you don't know enough yet. You don't, you have a really low opportunity cost. Just start working your butt off. And then once you're like, man, I'm working too hard. Maybe there's a way that I can get the same value with less work. Like now you start to be able to find those hacks and those cheats and, and optimize by focusing only on the things that are valuable. But you don't know what those are yet until you've just tried everything. Like you got to just be a worker before you can learn how to be an efficient worker. You can't just sit there and theorize about the most efficient way. I mean, in basketball, you have to just play a ton and just shoot a ton and be a scorer and then you can become a really efficient scorer. But you can't just sit on the sideline and theorize about which shots are the optimal shots to take for years and years and then enter the game and suddenly only take the high percentage shots and make them, you know? Oh, absolutely. I, I met this stand-up comedian in L.A. who teaches a, a comedy class. <laughs> and, and I was talking to the guy. You were like, said, teach okay. me, show me, show me the ways to make people laugh at me. <laughs> He coaches me. <laughs> right. I, I literally asked him that, by the way. So he, he coaches. That's exactly where this is going. He coaches people on doing stand up. And I said, hey, man, I said, what's the key? What's the key to doing stand up? Well, like, tell me one thing that I could use to be funnier. And he said to me, he goes, hack. <laughs> right, I could be a laugh act. And he goes, nope, nope, I'm not giving you that. He says, if you if you want to be funny, I want you to go on stage and try to make people laugh. Or I want you to walk over to that dude over there or somebody in this room and try to make them laugh. Until you do that, I ain't telling you nothing because you just BSing me. You don't want to be funny until you actually go make somebody, try to make somebody laugh and have them look at you like you crazy. Go do that, then come back to me. I'll give you some information and you'll actually learn something. And I was like, dang, I guess this brother just exposed me because I, I really don't want to be funny. And I think that's the story of so many people, right? Give me that life hack. Give me that success tip. Give me that insight. And it's like, nope, nope. Go try to do something first. Yep. You know, go try to do something and then come back and talk to me about information and insight because you want none of that will mean anything if you're not willing to hustle. You know, a lot, a lot of the um, 
I remember the the book, The Hard Thing About Hard Things, a great book by Ben Horowitz on building a startup, um, as well as a lot of podcasts, a lot of business books, a lot of self-help books that are about solving problems. But first, you need to create those problems before you try to solve them. First, you need to have a problem that you're a workaholic. Now you can start looking at how to solve that. First, you need to have the problem that you don't have enough time to focus on X, Y, and Z. First, you need to have the problem that you're doing work that you don't enjoy, and then you can learn how to do work that you enjoy. You've got to get a problem first. If you have a problem, that's progress. If you've run into an obstacle, that's progress. Now you have something to solve. So go create a problem for yourself, then you can start looking at how to solve it. But if you just start looking at solutions all the time and ways of being perfect at everything before you even have a relevant problem to address, if you start listening to podcasts about how to go pitch investors on a million dollar uh, angel investment <laughs> for your idea and you don't even have an idea that's stalled because it needs a million dollars right now, that's that's yeah, there's some value, but it's really, really limited. Like consume content oh, yeah. that inspires you <laughs> I, I gotta, to, to address the problem that is immediately at hand, not the problem that you imagine you'll have with your imagined idea down the road. Oh, yes. So I got to make a theological connection here. And I know you've heard this Bible verse growing up in the church. Wait, um, it, it says, uh, wait on the Lord and he will renew your strength or those that wait on the Lord, he will renew their strength. I've met so many people growing up in the church who had creative ideas or different sorts of plans. They were bouncing around and they'd say stuff like, oh, I'm waiting on the Lord, right? I'm waiting on the Lord. And, and they just kind of be sitting around. And so one day I went and looked at that Bible verse, man, because I knew there was something rubbing me the wrong way. And, and it hit me. The Bible says, wait on the Lord and he will renew your strength. Or those that wait upon him, he will renew their strength. Yeah, that word renew means to fill up again with energy, to replenish, you know, to repeat. So your strength can't be renewed until it has first been exhausted. So the, the idea of waiting on the Lord means you've done everything you can. Now you're waiting on him, not for the action, but for the result of action. You know, and, oh. and, and, and that that's it's that mentality right there. So so there's there is another verse. This is the one that I always love the most. And I would use it to counteract that kind of waiting on the Lord excuse. It's it's somewhere in the Psalms. I don't remember anymore, but it it says I will make my plans, but you direct my steps and you referring to to God. And I always think about how powerful that is. First, it doesn't say I'll sit around on my ass and wait for God to tell me what to do. No, no, no. I will make my plans and you direct my steps. And it doesn't even just say I will dream about or write down my plans and then you'll tell me how to act on them. Direct my steps implies that you're already walking. I'll make my plans. I'll start moving towards making progress towards those plans. And Ooh. as I'm walking on the path, you'll say, no, a little to the left, a little to the right. But you can't direct someone's steps who's not taking steps yet. You can't direct someone's steps who's sitting on the couch, you know, starting to get churchy. Yeah. Up here. <laughs> let's take a Mama, moment. there goes that man. <laughs> if you want to donate to our ministry, please send a check <laughs> at the mountain of the Lord. I don't know. I don't know where to send the check. All right. Oh, 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 oh. Or, or, or you, you, you can go, you can go to mama. There goes that man.com. <laughs> <laughs> I don't, I don't know where that goes. We might not want to say that. Who knows what's going to show up at that URL. <laughs> right. Hey, you, are you down for doing a little philosophy now? Total change of gears. Man, I'm always down for philosophy. Always. As long as the osophy is real. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> I always joke about that. There's this uh, great Spike Lee movie, probably the only Spike Lee movie that I know of that I would say is a great movie. And I mean, I've only seen a few, but called Bamboozle. <laughs> and this guy is like a tap dancer. And he always says, like, he'll do anything as long as the hoofing, uh, as long as the hoofing is real. So we say that about the osophy. As long as, the <laughs> as long as the osophy is real. Yep. Okay. So, <laughs> so I have this, this experience relatively mm -hmm. frequently 
where I get into a discussion with somebody and I, I really enjoy these kind of discussions, especially if it's people that I like and it's late night and we've had a few, few beers about the immortality of the soul or the existence of consciousness outside of the physical body or the existence of intelligent extraterrestrial life or the supernatural or God. And what inevitably every single time something happens, the person I'm talking with or persons, they have a belief about the existence or non-existence of these things and they make an argument for it. And I start challenging that argument and poking holes in it and pushing back on it and trying to really challenge it and knock it down and show why it might be a weak argument. And the minute I do this, they immediately accuse me of advocating the opposite of whatever it is that they believe. So if they say, I don't believe that aliens that are intelligent can exist because X, Y, and Z. And I say, well, X, Y, and Z, here are problems with those arguments. And they don't disagree with the problems. They just say, oh, well, well you prove to me that they do exist. And I'm like, whoa, 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 whoa. I haven't said that, right? I'm just trying to yeah, point yeah. out problems with your argument. In fact, people have even accused me of being a sophist or whatever, which is all well and good. It's all fun. But there's something kind of bothersome about this where I think there's this need that we all feel. We all, we all run into this. We need to have a definite conclusion about everything. And we need a positive argument for something. And so we just latch onto one. And when someone starts poking holes in arguments and saying, that's a crappy argument, we immediately resist because we worry not about that argument being true or untrue. We worry about, okay, well, if that is untrue, are they trying to lead me somewhere I don't want to go? And we start jumping three steps ahead. I've had conversations with people where they give me one argument against the existence of God. And I say, well, that's not a very strong argument because X, Y, and Z. And they're like, you're not going to convert me to Christianity. And I'm like, I'm not taking any stance at all. I'm merely addressing weaknesses <laughs> in this particular positive argument. So I have found that I love kind of being an agnostic on a great many things and I love knocking down crappy arguments that uh, arguments that I myself hold and other people hold more than finding positive arguments. And this is, I think the philosophical version of don't do stuff you hate, which is, you know, a life mantra of mine. Don't do stuff you hate. Don't believe in crappy arguments. And if instead of trying to find a positive argument with a solid conclusion for every single belief in every area of life, rather just examine arguments and try to eliminate the bad ones. Try to beat up every argument. And if it can't stand, say that one's no good. I can't latch onto that. And whatever's left over is fair game. And this means you start dealing with possibilities and probabilities instead of definite conclusions. And that field of what's possible and what's probable begins to narrow. And you might say, I have more arguments that are reasonable that would show there's a high probability of the existence of the supernatural, for example, than arguments that show there's a high probability against it. But there's some good arguments for each. There's a lot of bad arguments for each. I think most of the arguments we have for most of the things we believe are actually bad and don't stand up to scrutiny. I mean, I find this with myself and I want to knock those down. I want to challenge them. So I want to see if we can go through some crappy arguments that are commonly held and just knock them down without necessarily making a positive argument for something or offering a replacement, but just saying, let's not rule out possibilities based on arguments that are bad. Let's not just look for the first argument we can and latch onto it so that we have a definite conclusion. You follow me? Oh, I'll follow you 100% real quick. I got to read a quote, uh, another shout out to my man, Jay Clelly, AKA Jerry McClellan. He did a status update recently where he said, imagine being the kind of tedious idiot who, after reading something bad about a candidate, must immediately leave a comment about how their opponent is worse. Like, imagine not being able to spend one minute digesting a piece of information before lashing out for your team. I think that captures what you're talking about in a nutshell, but in a way that's broader than politics. We always have the ability to see lies as long as it's the other guys, right? <laughs> um, <laughs> and, and that's just that thing, man. We're, we're always thinking in terms of teams and competition rather than, hey, does the argument work? I, you know, I can still believe what I believe, but maybe this is just a bad argument to have it. I mean, even C.S. Lewis said this about theism. He says that, you know, that that a little doubt can be good for a person. 
Because when a person begins to doubt the existence of God, that doesn't necessarily mean they move further away from God, but it definitely means they have moved away from reasons for believing in God that were not worthy of them. Reasons for believing in God that clearly did not have the ability to help them weather the storm or that did not have the ability to stand the test of scrutiny. So you don't necessarily have to say, oh, I must be wrong. I must be a screw up to admit that. Maybe the arguments you have for supporting something could use a little work. Yeah, yeah, and I, and I would rather you know people will be like, okay, you've knocked down all these arguments that I have uh, against X, Y, and Z. What are your arguments for it? And I'm like, I don't necessarily have any. I I know of a few arguments that I haven't been able to knock down for, and a few against. Uh, I don't know. And I would rather have I would rather drown in a sea of possibility than be anchored to one conclusion based on a bad argument that's false. You know, um, and I think it's OK and, to just to just yeah, say, and here's, here's the, go ahead, go ahead. Oh, no, no, you know, oh, I'm sorry, I, man. I, I, I think there was a delay. <laughs> <laughs> you know, my, my problem with this question that people ask you, OK, OK, fine. You poke holes in my arguments. Well, what's your argument for the opposite? It's still sort of this attitude that says, fine, Isaac, you refuted my arguments. But unless you can prove to me the opposite is true, I still get to hang on to my beliefs. And. And why not just be non-defensive about it and say, huh, that's pretty interesting, man. You poked holes in all of my arguments. I got to think about that. That's fascinating. I, I still might be right. I, I may be wrong, but I got to think about it. That's interesting. Yeah. You know what I mean? There, there, there's no harm in that. And I, I hate the dichotomy. And I, mean, I understand linguistically it's comfortable and it's, you know, uh, catchy to use. But I hate the dichotomy, whether we're talking about, you know, UFOs or religion or whatever, of skeptics versus believers. Usually that dichotomy is actually referring to believers in one positive proposition versus believers in another positive proposition that is contradictory to it. Like people who are so-called skeptics are usually just as dogmatic and like barely skeptical, like hardly skeptical at all. I mean, they're usually just the same as people on the opposite side. There are people who believe that UFOs are real and there are aliens inside them and people who believe that they absolutely are not real and everybody who says so is a liar. Neither of those parties are skeptics. They're both believers in different things. And that's almost always the case when that skeptics versus believers dichotomy is put forward. There's there's so few sort of genuine skeptics, people who are just like, let's just look at all the arguments. Let's knock down the bad ones and eliminate them. And let's take the ones that can't be immediately eliminated. And let's just sort of look at them as okay, well, this can't be eliminated as a possibility. Now let's talk about the the probability. Which argument has a higher probability? And you could walk away saying there's a 60% probability or whatever. You don't have to put a numerical value that, you know, UFOs are made up and a 40% probability that maybe there's something there. That's okay. You don't have to come down on, you know what I mean? Oh, absolutely. You know, skepticism in the Cartesian sense is methodological and Socratic. It's about using a particular approach to analyzing and substantiating beliefs. It's not about saying, I'm gonna poke fun of religious people or people who believe in aliens and UFOs. It says no matter what the belief is, whether it's scientific or superstitious, I'm going to ask a certain set of questions about it in order to make sure that my reasons for holding it are good. But what's happened with skepticism is that term has become hijacked. Skepticism has now come to mean People who don't believe in conspiracy theories or people who don't believe in the supernatural. And, and what we've done is we've allowed people to classify themselves as skeptics, even though they don't hold to the epistemic standards that we hold other people to. So, for instance, for instance, let's say if I'm a traditional skeptic and I walk up to a, uh, a religious person with a Bible in their arm and I say, give me one good reason for believing in the existence of God. And if that person were to say to me, well, I actually can't argue for it. I, I don't I don't have that ability, but I, I have met a few theologians who have some really good arguments for the existence of God. And you should read their books and check it out. No one would accept that. No skeptic would accept that. They would say, don't hide behind some smart theologian. Back up your own beliefs. Like, give me the reasons for why you believe it. Don't hide behind another intellectual. Now, I say, OK, that's cool. That's fair. But notice how we let other people off the hook as long as they have the quote unquote right set of beliefs. 
You take, for instance, the philosophical problem of induction. You, you can check out Hume's portrayal of it, but I recommend picking up a copy of Bertrand Russell's The Problems of Philosophy and take a look at his summary of the problem of induction. The overwhelming majority of people who accept science as a valid form of knowledge or as a form of inquiry that leads to knowledge cannot defend it against the problem of induction. Now, there are lots of philosophers who are very confident that they have a solution to the problem. And I'm not even talking about those people. But 90% of the people who believe in science are not capable of doing anything in response to the problem of induction other than get annoyed at you for bringing it up. And, and we actually allow that. We actually allow them to hide behind the arguments of intellectuals who've done the work that they're not willing to do. And my contention with that is, that's inconsistent. That's what Ravi Zacharias calls smuggled in epistemology. You're holding some people to epistemic standards that you yourself are not willing to live up to. If skepticism is about having evidence for your beliefs, no matter what the belief is, then you have to treat everything and everyone equally. It's not about scoring points for a team. It's not about science versus super, superstition. It's about everyone holding themselves accountable to thinking things, thinking things through for themselves. Hmm. I would, I would always rather be skeptical than be a skeptic um, <laughs> in yeah. terms of the label. So I want to go through a couple examples. Let's go through a couple crappy arguments. So the other day, I went for it. Well, it wasn't the other day. It was like a month ago or two months ago. I'm terrible at time um, <laughs> because no one knows what time really is. Um, <laughs> I went for a walk on the beach and I was like, okay, this will be good. It'll clear my head. It will help me think of some solutions to some challenges with the business. And instead, did you say affirmations while you were walking on the beach about no, how you love yourself? No, I didn't. <laughs> <laughs> I talked about, I, I did, uh, I affirmed my belief that your affirmations are useless. Um, no. So I went for a walk on the beach and I was like, oh, this would be good. I'll, I'll have some good insights and inspiration, you know, sort of like very business related because sometimes that happens. Nope, not that didn't happen at all. Instead, out of the blue, this categorical syllogism sort of popped into my head. I think it's a categorical syllogism. I'm not, I'm not as fresh on my philosophy terminology as I used to be. So I'm walking and all of a sudden I have this thought and it, and it goes like this. Um, an immortal being would not fear death. Humans do fear death. Therefore, humans are not immortal. Okay, so as structured, I believe that would be called a categorical syllogism. Let's just call it an argument in case I'm wrong. As structured, that argument would be valid. That is a valid argument. Now, to discover whether or not it's true, we would need to examine the truth of the premises. And so there are two premises that... An immortal being would not fear death and that humans do fear death. And so if you discover, if you explore the second premises, humans do fear death, you could say, well, maybe humans don't fear death. Maybe what they really fear is pain. But it seems that but we actually are kind of afraid of death, even if it didn't come with pain, like getting instantaneously blown up or something still makes us scared. Um, maybe it's just change that death is a change and we really fear change, not so much death. That's possible. But I think that second premise, I'm willing to say that that is a true premise that humans do fear death. Um, you could, you could, you know, finagle and, and get into semantics of whether it's death or something else that's being feared, but let's accept that premise is true. So now the truth of this valid argument comes down to the first premise, an immortal being would not fear death. And at first, when this popped in my head, I thought, wow, this is like, this could be like a knockdown argument against the immortality of the soul because we all fear death. Why would we fear death if we were immortal? And so I started to examine it and I actually realized something interesting about that first premise. And I thought, is there the question that we need to answer? Is there any plausible reason that an immortal being would be afraid of death? Anyone, if we can find a single plausible reason that an immortal being would be afraid of death, then that premise is no longer true and the argument is no longer true. Um, and so I started to think through and all of a sudden what seemed obvious to me, like, no, why would you fear death if you're immortal? Actually completely reversed on me because if you were immortal, death would not be the end of anything. It would be a change. And there are plenty of rational reasons to fear change. We see it in our mortal life. 
we fear moving to a new city, even if we know ahead of time that that city is going to be better and have more things that we like. It's still a little bit scary because there's some element of unknown. We fear a new job. We fear changes of any kind. We fear my kids fear growing up. Like I'm scared. What, what if I change? What if my personality changes when I'm older? My son has said that to me. Humans tend to fear change and the reasons are rational because there's an element of the unknown. So what we really fear is the unknown. Now, fear of the unknown can be explained rationally if we're immortal, death is like a massive unknown. So if I told you, TK, if I said, walk through this door, open it up, and whatever's behind that door, you have to shut yourself in and live with it for an hour. Hmm. You'd be a little bit scared if you had no idea what was behind that door. What if it's a rabid dog? What if it's uh, you know, a room full of Barry Manilow music playing nonstop and you can't stand <laughs> Oh man. You know, what if it you don't know? Maybe it's something good, maybe it's bad, but it's unknown to you and you know you're gonna have to live with it for an hour. Now, if you're immortal, it's like walking through a door that you don't know what's behind it, and you have to live with it forever. And when I started to think about that, I thought it's entirely rational. Not only is it rational if an if a being is immortal for them to fear a change into something largely unknown, like, like what death would be. But in fact, you would expect an immortal being to have a tremendous fear of death. That's com completely rational and logical. Whereas if a being is mortal, it starts to become really odd that they would fear death. If death is truly just a ceasing of all existence, what could there be to fear? If there's nothing on the other side, if there's no unknown, if everything vanishes, I'm not saying that you wouldn't fear death if you're mortal, but it seems like we have, we, we, there needs to be some reason. There's gotta be some, maybe there's biological, maybe there are reasons that I don't know, but like the probability of fearing death seems higher if you're immortal, not lower. And so when I started to examine what I thought was sort of a knockdown argument against the immortality of the soul, I thought, okay, it's not, it's a valid argument, but the first premise that an immortal being would not fear, fear death is definitely untrue. And so saying humans must not be immortal because if we were, why would we fear death is not a true argument. That's not a good argument to make against immortality. It doesn't prove that humans are immortal or have an immortal soul, but if anything, it increases the probability that humans are immortal because it seems more likely that an immortal being would fear death than a mortal being. So that's just one example. I think the badness of that argument can be more clearly seen if you break it down a little bit further. So the reason we think that an immortal being would not fear death is because we believe that an immortal being is one who does not die. Therefore, death is not worthy of being feared. So let, 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 let's break that down and make it even more clear. So if a, if a being is immortal, then death is not worthy of being feared, right? Um, a being would not fear something that is unworthy of fear. Now, that premise right there is, 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 is where this argument comes from. It's an assumption that's built into that argument. And I think that's clearly untrue. And we can see everyday examples of that, that we fear things that are not worthy of fear all the time, even if we're not talking about immortality. Like you can you can see examples, for instance, of children going into experiences that you as an adult know are not dangerous, you know this is a situation that's not worthy of fear, but because the child doesn't know what you know, um, they misperceive the situation or just the nature of the uncertainty makes them fear that which is not worthy of such a response. You know? Yeah. Yeah. And, and again, we haven't proven anything about the immortality of soul, but we have eliminated one argument and we have found a completely rational and logical explanation for if someone were immortal, they would still fear death. And so you can eliminate that one argument against immortality, which, again, it's this process of elimination that I think is where the most fruitful philosophy happens. So I want to talk about another one. And this is a sort of materialism. An argument that you often hear is nothing exists beyond the physical realm because I have no evidence for it. And when I've gotten into this discussion with people, I'll push them. I'll say, well, what would evidence look like? And whatever they start to give is a physical thing. So they're saying nothing non-physical exists because I have no physical evidence for it. Or another way to, to even draw out the point even further is nothing non-physical exists because it's non-physical. 
And that's obviously a bad argument. It's crappy. It's just a circular argument. If it, by definition, it wouldn't be physical. So saying I have no physical evidence for the non-physical is not a good argument. That doesn't mean that non-physical things do exist, but that is not worthy of your belief uh, that they don't exist. Have you run into to, to that or other similar materialistic arguments that are that are crappy? You know, it's interesting because I've always felt that this was a rather simple distinction that isn't as popular as I would like it to be. I mean, we, we've all heard the Carl Sagan quote that the absence of evidence is not evidence of absence. We've all heard that. And that seems pretty self-evident, right? Just because I can't find evidence that something exists doesn't mean I have found evidence that it does not exist. And yet people violate this principle all the time. I have seen debates go on for hours where people conflate those two things. And I think if you lack evidence for something, the most you could say is there exists no reason for believing X. I have no evidence for X. There exists no reason for taking the idea of X seriously. There exists no reasons for believing it. But that's very different from making the stronger positive claim, which is we can know probabilistically or certainly that X does not exist. And I, I hear people complain that all the time. I, I would say not all arguments, but a significant amount of the arguments for materialism do rely on the conflation of that um, of that distinction. I would say a stronger approach to take if you're going to argue for materialism would be to argue for the logical impossibility or the inconceivability of non-material reality to try to show that the, the very term supernatural is a conceptually bankrupt term, that we think what we know what we're talking about, just like a child thinks he or she knows what they're talking about when they say something like a square circle. But but you're really talking about something that has no substance, that that it's literally not conceivable. I think that would be the best way to go if you're yeah, going to argue for be, it. I, that's what I always, I always try to move people away from the realm of well, I want to look at the evidence, the empirical data, the hard physical, most of these core beliefs, philosophy, most of the things we're dealing with in philosophy have to be won or lost in the realm of logic. Most of them have to be sort of a priori, you know, um, true or false based on logic. You can't, you can't do an evidence-based argument for the existence of a non-physical reality. It's got to happen in the realm of logic. So just moving into the realm of logic itself is a huge victory. And now we can decide logically which one is true or false, or at least which one is more or less probable. Um, but that's something that so many people, they, they pretend to be like, no, I want to dwell in the world of evidence for things that by definition cannot be decided by evidence, like whether or not we're perceiving, you know, whether the world exists independent of our perception of it. Well, you can't de decide that based on evidence because the evidence comes through perception. We've got to move to the realm of logic. That is not a lower form of argument. That's a actually higher, less prone to error form of argument than uh, evidence. Oh man, this reminds me of, I'm going to use another church example. This reminds me of when having theological debates, people say things like, no, 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 no opinion. No interpretation. Let's just go with what the Bible says. <laughs> That's always the best, right? It's like, yeah, because we don't have 2,700 different denominations that disagree on major themes because of what the Bible says, right? Like you can't separate your understanding of what it says without involving some element of human interpretation. Yeah. I think in a similar way, people say things like, Let's just look at the empirical data. No, no philosophy, no opinion. Let's just look at the empirical data. But the empirical data can't take you anywhere. And that unless, itself is, uh, is based on an opinion. It's based on an opinion that data is interpretable, that data is more relevant. That, like you have metaphysical, like you said, like Robbie's Absolutely. Empirical data can't get you anywhere unless, unless you first have epistemic principles in place that themselves cannot be substantiated by the empirical data. So, for instance, if, if someone says, hey, look, I know that science is true because it works. It, it, it predicts certain kinds of events and those events takes, take place. So it works. I don't have to do any philosophy. I can test it and I can see that it works. But even then, you're presupposing an epistemic principle that says, 
that that pragmatism is correlated with the truth, that if something works, that should count as evidence for its truth. Now, that epistemic principle may be true or it may be false, but it has to be established prior to appealing to empirical data because it is the very thing that serves as your framework for the empirical data. And furthermore, are you willing to concede that another person's belief system is true merely because it works to achieve a certain result? Because a person can say belief in the existence of an afterlife works as a tool to comfort me in my dying hour. That works, but is that evidence that it's true? So we have these epistemic principles that need to be debated and determined before we can even know what to do with all of this data. And we, we tend to forget that. So this one of my favorite uh, political and legal thinkers, John Hasness, he has this great line in, in his essay, The Obviousness of Anarchy, which is one of the greatest essays ever. I read it like once a year at least. Um, he says, the best way to prove that something is possible is to show that it already ex- <laughs> that it already exists. And that sounds so simple, But I think there's so much power in this. I guess I call it like the argument by analogy, which I think it's sort of a bad name sometimes. People accuse me sometimes of if they're arguing against something, against the possibility of something. And I say, well, we have an analogy of something similar that we know is possible. Therefore, this other thing could be possible. They'll say, well, that's not the same thing. But I think I think it actually is. And I think this is really important because arguing for possibility That's a much weaker claim than arguing either for or against existence. And so one of the one of the areas of discussion is um, I've had with people before, like, okay, could intelligent extraterrestrial life exist? And one of the most common arguments you'll hear people will say one of two things, either no intelligent alien life doesn't exist because if it did, they would have made contact with us so far. Uh, They would have made contact with us. We would know about it. Or. No, it can't exist because we know that faster than light travel isn't possible and they would have to live somewhere that would require faster than light travel. Now, my response to those arguments is not a positive argument for the existence of intelligent extraterrestrial life, just pushing back on those and saying, okay, if you were, you know, let's use an analogy. If you were an ant in the jungle of the Amazon, um, you would have no evidence that human societies existed anywhere. And you would say, yeah, if these intelligent humans really existed, why haven't we seen them? Or even a better analogy, Native Americans, let's say, before Europeans came over to this continent, saying, if there were really people in any other part of the world, we would have seen them by now. And you can see that that's not a sound argument in that one case. So if it's not in the one case, I think it applies to the other, because what you're really arguing is that all possibilities that exist in order for us to claim that they're that they are, exist as possibilities we must have experienced them as realities and it's very easy to see because we have infinite examples of how that's not the case there are many things that are true that we didn't know were true for a long time so you can't rule out a possibility just based on the fact that you haven't experienced it as a reality yet that's a that's a weak argument so just showing one time one example anywhere in human history of something that was true that we didn't know was true for a long time um, is enough to dispel that argument or the, the or the faster than light travel argument. You could say, OK, well, people thought for hundreds of years you couldn't cross an ocean because no vessel could make it, you know, that far. And all of a sudden it happened. And that was there based on their knowledge of what was physically possible. And we've and we've known about our own laws of physics currently for an even smaller amount of time than that. And and things have always been proven different than we thought. So like that alone is not a sufficient argument because there is the possibility that our understanding of physics is incorrect. Um, and I just think that's, I think that's really powerful to say if to, to prove that something is possible, all you need to do is show that it has ever existed one time in the history of humanity. And if you can show that once, then all of a sudden you can't say it's impossible. Doesn't mean it's true. Doesn't even mean it's probable but it means it's possible. So, you know, th- this is part and parcel of the, the Socratic method. You, you take these absolute claims. Well, something is right because it feels good in my conscience. And, and, and then you try to find a counterexample. You say, okay, well, 
What if you felt good about murdering someone because you were angry? Or what if someone felt good about stealing your food or robbing your house? Would that be right? And then it forces that person to say, oh, well, it looks like that exception does serve as a valid counterexample to my absolute state, absolute claim. So now I need to either abandon the claim or refine it. Maybe I'll refine it. Okay, okay, Socrates, very well. Something is not right merely because it feels good in my conscience, but it's right if it feels good, you know, uh, in accordance with my conscience and if it is legal, if it is consistent with the laws of the state. Okay, well, what if it's consistent with the laws of the state to enslave a man and it feels good to do so? And so you go on this exercise and most people get annoyed and angry by this kind of exercise because they feel like, oh, you're drowning me in a sea of hypotheticals. And what does this have to do with the real world? And I would say it actually has everything to do with the real world. The, the ability to envision counterexamples to absolute claims is at the heart of all creativity and innovation because all creativity and innovation begins with an assumption about how the world must be, right? And, and the creators and the innovators say, I can conceive of an alternative possibility. So we can debate this in the abstract. Someone may say, time travel is impossible. And you may say, well, why? And they say, well, because if time travel were possible, people from the future would be flooding our world and we would be meeting a bunch of people who claim to be from the future. And, and you can accept that argument and say, okay, time travel is impossible. I won't do any more thinking about the issue. But then you can take that Socratic approach and, and you, can, you can conceive of a counterexample where you say, well, maybe if someone travels to the past, maybe they would have a vested interest in not revealing that fact that they are from the past. Maybe it could be like the movie Happy Accidents where they're trying to escape from someplace and they're using time travel as a means of not being found. Maybe there's some kind of rule they have to follow that we don't know about. And, and, and if you take what I'm saying too seriously, you, you, you'll, you'll make the mistake of assuming I believe in time travel or saying, oh, TK, you're just a little too serious about time travel. And that's not what I'm serious about. Or making what the I'm mistake serious of about, saying that, that it, you believe in nothing and you think that nothing can be proven and that we know nothing. And that a lot of people get right, mad at right. that. And, yeah. And that's not the point at all. The, the, the point is having a sense of, of imagination that runs so deep that you are not so quick to accept claims about what is impossible or yeah. what is absolute, yeah. that you can envision alternate realities. And I would say that your ability to solve problems in everyday life and, and your ability to create, to innovate, it all depends on that that exercise, that ability to do that. Yeah. To just say, I can't, I can't say that, you know, whatever time travel is impossible. I think there are a few arguments that make it more improbable than the arguments that make it probable, or maybe I feel with a certain degree of probability, you know, um, and that kind of thinking is, is powerful and not something that we need to be threatened by. You don't need to have an answer. Um, you know, something you said really stuck with me and that is the, it, could there be a rational reason for a time traveler to not reveal themselves, whatever. And I think this is the same thing that economic thinking is so powerful at. It doesn't let us off the hook by saying, oh, well, people do this because they're dumb or crazy or irrational. If you take that option away and say that's not available to you, then you're forced to say, could there be any possible rational reason for behaving in the following way? And you start to examine that. That's where things get really fruitful and really interesting and really enlightening. And similarly, with big philosophical concepts, you introduced me to a book that I'm forgetting the name of right now. But this guy basically applies an economic way of thinking, rational choice thinking, and game theory to the question of the existence of God. And he makes a bunch of assumptions. He assumes a God based on basically a Judeo-Christian version of God. And he says, based on these attributes, superior beings, that's the name of the book, superior beings. And he says, if a God had these attributes... Would there be any possible rational reason for that God behaving basically in the way that the Bible claims? And he goes through basically game theory of both humans and the deity and the incentives that they face. And he essentially comes out with saying there is an equilibrium that is very likely to be arrived at that essentially mirrors the experience that we in fact 
have where it's very hard to prove God doesn't reveal himself in some way that's indisputable, whatever. Now, this doesn't prove the existence of God, but saying if there were a God and if they behaved rationally and if humans behaved rationally, given the incentives everyone faces, is there any possible scenario in which a God could exist that doesn't indisputably prove its own existence? And you actually find that there are scenarios where that's possible. And that's a really powerful thing. All right, we were having all kinds of Skype issues, must be the Wi-Fi in Michigan. So the audio got cut off, but we were at the very end, and I asked TK for his recommendation, and he gave me the book that we were already discussing, Superior Beings. And my recommendation for the week is The Fabric of the Cosmos by Brian Greene, which, uh, whether or not you believe in different interpretations of quantum physics and string theory. It's a fascinating book of the history of physics. And really what I take away from it is highlighting how little we know about the theories that we believe to be true. So superior beings from TK, the fabric of the cosmos for me. I speak for both me and TK when I say thanks for listening. Peace out.